Mars was empty before we came. That's not to say that nothing had ever happened. The planet had accreted, melted, roiled and cooled, leaving a surface scarred by enormous geological features. Craters, canyons, volcanoes. But all of that happened in mineral unconsciousness and unobserved. There were no witnesses, except for us, looking from the planet next door, and that only in the last moment of its long history. We are all the consciousness that Mars has ever had. Now everybody knows the history of Mars in the human mind, how for all the generations of prehistory it was one of the chief lights in the sky because of its redness and fluctuating intensity, and the way it stalled in its wandering course through the stars, and sometimes even reversed direction. It seemed to be saying something with all that. So perhaps it is not surprising that all the oldest names for Mars have a peculiar weight on the tongue. Nirgal, Mangala, Aquaqua, Parmakis. They sound as if they were even older than the ancient languages we find them in, as if they were fossil words from the Ice Age or before. Yes, for thousands of years, Mars was a sacred power in human affairs, and its color made it a dangerous power, representing blood, anger, war, and the heart. Then the first telescopes gave us a closer look, and we saw the little orange disk, with its white poles and dark patches spreading and shrinking as the long seasons passed. No improvement in the technology of the telescope ever gave us much more than that, but the best earthbound images gave Lowell enough blurs to inspire a story, the story we all know, of a dying world and a heroic people, desperately building canals to hold off the final deadly encroachment of the desert. This is Dark and Stormy Nights, the podcast where we read the first page, and only the first page, of every novel ever written. I'm your host, Vin LeBate. And I'm your other host, Ben Blattberg. And tonight we're talking about the first page of Red Mars by Kim Stanley Robinson, published in 1993. And joining us tonight is Chris Van Dyke. Hi, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me. So we're all familiar with Mars. Heard of it? Uh, this is, this is one of those, uh, sort of classics of the sci-fi shelf. Uh, but it's one that I gather you have actually read. I actually have read it. Um, and it is the only Kim Stanley Robinson book that I have finished. I have abandoned about five. of them. <laughs> <laughs> I have abandoned this one. <laughs> Not that it's bad, but oh, we'll get into that later. But, uh, it is very dense is what I'll say. Uh, I, I have read, uh, many of, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's books as well as had a very nice chat with him at Worldcon oh. uh, several years ago, uh, which I can uh, expand on at length. <laughs> so, so we're all generally familiar with Mars uh, and somewhat familiar with Kim Stanley Robinson. I'm really curious to know, I guess, what made you guys bounce off this book? Uh, well, in, in Vin's case, like, I mean, uh, usually we just share a uh, cover uh, and a first page, but but this book has a map, which I know is is one of Chris's uh, weaknesses. Always a selling point. Yeah, um, yeah. I I bounced off for the reason I bounce off of a lot of things that I kind of like, which is just that I got distracted by something else, and then the prospect of returning to something this dense and detailed was just like, oh, 
That's I would have to start over from the very beginning, and this is several hundreds of pages. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I I got through this book, um, but I think my experience with almost every Kim Stanley Robinson book is I love the idea. I get excited about it. I start it, and actually, I love the first like hundred pages, and then it just starts feeling a little too much like homework. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that's with Red Mars. I made it through like I love the first half of Red Mars. I think it was this book. I was like, everyone, this is great. And then like I barely made it through the second half. And then when I saw there were two more, it's like no. Um, I did the same thing with like the years of rice and salt. I love the beginning, and then I just never made it through this. I picked this one up. I love the beginning of it, and I never made it through. It just there just was never enough momentum. I mean, he's not really a plot or a character person. He's more of just the idea. Um, mm-hmm. So that first page reminded me why I liked it. Like that was a great first page, I think. Um, but it's like it doesn't then lead, and it's more like there's 600 pages of that. Um, yeah, there's not a lot of focus. Yeah, like he he wants to tell you everything that's going on with everyone. Yeah, uh, and and like taking into account both personalities and uh, the material substrata. Of, of what goes into people's lives mm. um i mean it's one thing uh like if i saw the cover at the bookstore i don't know that i would i would like grab this book off and say like i have to have this one book where like there's a spaceship over mars and there's this band of like sort of semi-discreet uh pictures on the side and yet like that is kind of the perfect cover for this book i i, I think uh both having read the book and just from the first page where like so much of it is about like multiplicity and unity mm-hmm. like how multiple things come together uh uh right and it's mars it's on the cover yeah there you go and it's red yeah and it's like it's a well put together cover it's like one that it's another one of those covers that i always noticed in the store which is why I ended up eventually picking it up from a used bookstore. Um, like it's, it's well painted, well drawn, well composed, but it's like, it is very, especially in a modern day, like, yeah, it's a planet with a spaceship. I've seen that. Huh. Yeah. I mean, as of, to, so I think for today, it looks like high quality stock art you could get today though. At the time I do remember the, the cover um, was striking. I mean, this is the one I have Aurora. It's look, there's, there's a space station. It looks sort of like a mechanical pencil in side of two bracelets <laughs> listeners that's a reference to an episode that may have aired several months ago depending on how <laughs> we're formatting this podcast <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a little easter egg for all you uh long-term listeners hmm. i was gonna say uh uh i mean two two bracelets is progress also yeah. we should hmm. point out that um uh yeah it is i mean not to uh, make too many comparisons to the last book we read uh which I will leave as an uh, Easter egg for you to find out mm-hmm. uh, or just look through the show notes, I guess. We'll probably mention it. Uh, but like, I'm vaguely curious, like what a 25th anniversary, uh, like crap Kindle cover of Red Mars would look like mm. uh, compared to some of like, I don't know. We Something I have noticed in a few of the books is that like even the, the bad uh, original covers from the 60s and 70s uh, have something interesting whereas like modern uh kindle uh editions that are meant to be like a little nicer have uh, a real blandness to them that i think is captured by the phrase stock art mm-hmm. 
Whereas this, I think, like you said, like even though it is kind of stock, uh, if not stock are like stock themes, like there's a domed city and there's an astronaut and there's uh, an, another sort of uh, orb-based uh, science station. You know, it kind of looks like uh, C-Lab 2021 uh, is what I'm thinking. Uh, or even C-Lab 2020, I guess. Um, like they're all kind of like stock known stuff, but it's done very well. Kind of evocative. Well, like I said, it does like with the, you know, conglomeration of images on the cover sort of does capture this sort of sweep um, that he's going for in the books. I just Googled some of the other alternative covers and yeah, this is definitely the most, the one we're talking about, uh, which I think is the, the original, um, is, think so. the most, is the most interesting. I mean, I don't know. One here now. That's just that's just Mars. Like I don't know. Mm, I'm, okay, yeah. it's mm. Mars. Whereas this this captures sort of the you know the colonization of it, which is obviously the point of it. It's not it's not purely six hundred pages of the geographical history, um, or geological history of Mars. Yeah, there's there's one I'm looking at that's like a very like stylish, like it's all red, and there's just sort of the crescent of Mars with a bit of aurora around it in black. Yeah. Yep. And that's like a very cool cover for a different book because that really suggests a lot of energy that is not going on here. Yeah, I'm looking at that one too. That's like book one of a series of like noir detective novels set on Mars. Yeah. There's definitely where's yeah. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, there's uh, something set for a, a cover that tells you the book that you're getting, and this tells you the book that you're getting. Very much. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, diving into the text, uh, so Chris, you know this book. Uh, actually, let me rephrase that. Chris, you read this book. I read this uh, book, and, and probably and, about ten years ago. See, I, I don't know if I know the book well, but I do. I do remember reading it. Uh, and Vin, you at least read probably a hundred pages. About half, I would say. Yeah. Uh, I, I will say one thing about uh, the note that, like, there's a, a sense of uh, homework uh, to some of. Uh, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson. Uh, I can't remember if it's in this novel. I, I think it might be in one of the the other color uh, Mars books, blue or green. Yeah, uh, where or maybe it was in this. I forget. There's there, there's one point where the uh, the depressed therapist sort of uh, develops a new theory of consciousness, which is essentially just the uh, four humor system. <laughs> but uh, the way that he develops this is through a uh, uh, a structure of thinking, uh, which is sometimes known as a Gramassian square, which is something that I, I studied in, in grad school, uh, and really loved. And like knowing that Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, was, uh, I mean, is a PhD, uh, in English, uh, means that like a lot of his stuff, uh, really resonated for me when I was in grad school. Cause so I was like, oh yes, I know this too. Like we're reading the same, uh, like this name, Philip K. Dick, uh, books, uh, and criticism, uh, because that was what he did. Uh, I think his, his, his PhD, his dissertation is on Philip K. Dick hmm. actually. Uh, also, uh, I believe he loves baseball. Uh, and that, that's my little Kim Stanley Robinson corner. This is definitely the work of a man who loves baseball. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it has that same sort of like interest in systems and like things that like seem boring from the outside. But if you're on the inside, you might be really interested in. Mm-hmm. We're going into extra innings, folks. Mm-hmm. Are, are, are you still into baseball, Chris? I um, that's been one of the many casualties of children. I have not watched baseball in quite a while, but um, 
I did I did have quite an arc of as a teenager and a college student thinking baseball was boring and then really getting into baseball. Baseball's great. And loving baseball and um everything sort of that you did having a knowledge of it would allow you to watch a game that a non you know someone who doesn't know the way the game works would think is incredibly boring. Um, but as a person who knows you know what's going on, it's interesting. So that could definitely be a Kim Stanley Robinson uh thing. You're like, all right, there's a, it's a zero to zero game, but this is intense for people who know <laughs> know what's going on. Right, right. If if you're just coming into this uh, baseball game with mineral unconsciousness, you might not get what's going on. But <laughs> the third baseman's been accreting for two innings now, folks. <laughs> the the bases were empty before we got on. Uh, but yeah, so that first sentence: Mars was empty before we came. Is good. Yeah. Uh, unlike many of the sentences that are about to follow, uh, it is very simple, but also uh, very rich. Uh, like the sentences that come after it. Like, we know Mars was empty. Like, this isn't going to be a story about Martians. But we also know that we got there. Yeah. And also, there's really the implication that we're going to be learning about filling it up. You know. No, it's opposed to, like, the rest of the page has some very long sentences. But that's sort of a very nice, tight beginning that doesn't start with a bang, but also gets my interest. I say, while you were reading the first page, I was like, you know, there's a reason that I did finish this book I, and I actually loved the first half of it. Is it's I don't know, that was a very well-written page, I thought. It's a line that has emptiness in it <laughs> compared to the rest of the page, which is interesting to me. Well, what, it's interesting to me how close he comes to, like, how, how close he comes to the edge with that second line. Because Mars was empty before we came is a nice, solid sentence, as we talked about. Like, it describes something, it hints at what's to come. Uh, but that second sentence, uh, that's not to say that nothing had ever happened, uh, is just full of uh, like negative space in a way. Mm-hmm. Like it, it tells you what is not true, but it doesn't tell you anything about like what is true. Like something happened, but like we don't know what. Yep. And even the phrasing of like, that's not to say. Uh, I mean, actually, in a way, like that's not to say... Uh, I mean, I don't want to say every line of this is brilliant, but like there's a real tension I feel between like things happening and people thinking about them or talking about them or like telling stories about them. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's sort of an implication of a narrator sort of storytelling um, that, that is not to say it sort of implies that this is being told to someone, not merely a objective third person narrator. Mm hmm. And then he gets to use the word accreted, which I'm a big fan of. Yeah. yeah. But like, not, not like as a, a, a showstopper. That's not the end of the sentence. No. It's just one of a series of things, <laughs> which of course is another like theme of the book. It's just like a series of things. It created, melted, roiled, mm-hmm. cooled. Put that right under the staggering book, the best novel of colonization the Mars has ever been written. Yeah. There's a bunch of things. Uh, craters, canyons, volcanoes. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of stuff in this book. Like this book could just be like a list of things. That would be kind of like the great like Ulipo sort of game version of this. Sorry, listeners. I know I I keep mentioning Ulipo games, but uh, I much prefer the structure to free verse, I guess. Mm-hmm. But like, there is something funny about like if you were to write this book without any people, but just as like lists of things, uh, kind of like uh, Alain Robegrier's. Uh, Nouvelle Roman. Uh, I can't remember which one it was. Uh, and that's just what I was thinking of when I was thinking of Kim Stanley Robinson. Well, there is something like, I, I, you know what? 
uh, I'm going to say this. Uh, I talked to, to Kim Stanley Robinson and I told him and I, my idea for my uh, unwritten dissertation. And he said I had uh, a really good idea there. Uh, uh, <laughs> we should probably cut all this out, but okay. Uh, yeah, it probably won't happen. <laughs> um, but there is something about like this first sentence. I, I mean, we, we, we've talked before uh, about books where like they throw you into the action versus this, which is just like, let mm. me just kind of like meander through history. Um, I have no idea if I pronounced uh, any of those names for Mars correctly, but like it, it has that, that quality of just like, I don't, I don't know enough to pronounce these correctly, but like, I don't know enough about Mars, uh, or about like, like to really understand Mars, you really need to know like everything, uh, about the universe. It feels like. A decent working knowledge of ancient Sumerian would probably be a good starting spot, right? Let's yeah. go from there. And then all the way up to Lowell, do we... Do either of you immediately offhand know the Lowell reference at the end of this page? Yeah, the Lowell, um, the Lowell Observatory, named after the astronomer who basically solidified the theory about canals on Mars. Oh. Uh, he didn't originate, I forget the name, an Italian guy, an Italian astronomer originated it, but Lowell was the one who basically convinced the world that there were canals on mars for a decent period of time well he built he built his own observatory in flagstaff arizona which is still in operation named after him uh i i vaguely recall that uh like uh, i don't recall what observations he made but i recall that uh like chris was saying it's uh, the italian observer who called them uh canali which is channels mm-hmm. uh and then lowell popularized that as canals and then everyone else is like wait like canals are dug by people and then, you know, Ed, Ed, and they have waters Edgar Rice yeah. Burroughs comes along pretty much. Uh, and then Lowell was like, oops, sorry, just had a scratch lens. Scratch that, but it was too late. Hmm. Things had already accreted. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Theories were in place, and it was too much fun to think of people sailing around in canals on Mars. Uh, I mean, yeah. <clears throat> sorry. Uh, besides, uh, you know, Edgar Rice Burroughs, like canals on Mars show up uh, all over, like down to, uh, what's his name? Chris, who do I not, who do I not like besides C.S. Lewis? Ray Bradbury. Thank you. <laughs> you don't like Ray, because I was thinking Ray Bradbury I right off the bat, because, you know, his Martian Chronicles. Martian you don't like Ray Bradbury? Uh, just morally speaking. Okay. Okay, well that's, yeah. Okay, never mind. Yeah, yeah. As a writer, I find him compelling, uh, which is very upsetting. But, um, is Ray Bradbury actually offensive or is he just, he always seemed to be the prototypical, like grumpy old man who just thought like literature was going to hell on a handbasket after him. Um, uh, he has some things, I mean, he, like, like many members, uh, like, like, I mean, honestly, like all of us, uh, he is a mix of good and bad, uh, thoughts on things and like, like many old, uh, timers and probably like us to the future, he can seem especially bad when he's trying to be good. Uh, if you remember his, mm. uh, story about, uh, black people going to space, um, yeah, uh, yeah, no, yeah. Told, told in dialect, uh, a man of his time. Yeah. Uh, but, but definitely, definitely a grumpy old man. Definitely a, uh, a, a good example of, uh, Douglas Adams, uh, dictum that like, uh, any technology created, uh, when you're a child is natural. Uh, anything created up to the time you're 30 is cool, and everything after is an abomination. 
I refuse to talk to my phone. Yeah. Mm. It is fun to think about like the, the old timers who, if they were alive today, would be on Twitter, you know, like really having fun. And the people who are just like, no, like everything should be like uh, gas powered and slide rules. Uh, Speaking of old timers, do you know that Cormac McCarthy has a Twitter account? No. <laughs> his, his bio is, my publicist thinks this is a good use of my short remaining time on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> As of yesterday, he followed nobody and only had 320 followers and had like six tweets in like five years. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I mean, at least he has the excuse that his publicist thinks it's a good use of his remaining time. Also, I'm fucking Cormac McCarthy. I don't need a tweet. Yeah. I don't know what the rest of us have an excuse. But were you going to say something about Ray Bradbury before we got derailed? Uh, Ray Bradbury. Was it just Mars and Canals and Martian Chronicles? bars and canal i mean what uh what is interesting about this book and this page is that like clearly kim stanley robinson is positioning this book in the long history of our our thoughts on mars well sort of scientific and the popular imagination right yeah, yeah. like <laughs> so like it's a planet that has like a lot of uh rocks and things and things happening to rocks uh and then what do we think about it? Like, well, it's red, so it's about blood and war, you know. But then also, we tell this story about the dying world. What have we imagined about it? I mean, like, this book would be sort of the exact polar opposite, I guess, of Bradbury's Martian Chronicles, which is flights of fancy and sort of speculative fiction, more for the sake of, you know, getting across some, like, theme where it's like, we're going to land on Mars. There's going to be a small Ohio town there. Why? I don't know, but it's going to make for an interesting story as opposed to Kim Stanley Robinson, which is the hardest of hard sci-fi. Mm-hmm. This is what it actually would be like if we made it to Mars. Um, there's no Strauss being played by a band of Martians. Yeah, I, I will say that reading Red Mars and the whole trilogy uh, left me with a feeling uh, that only a few books leave me with, which is like, why aren't we doing this now? Mm-hmm. Like this seems very possible uh, in mm-hmm. 1993, <laughs> in 2021. I don't know, uh, but back in 93, uh, I still had hope. Um, but I do remember those. There was, I mean, there was sort of an intrigue plot to the book. I can't remember what it was at all, uh, but I do remember that you know there was sort of political machinations going on. Um, between different sort of interests of both sort of the scientific and cultural. Um, so he was definitely playing out not just the Mars, but sort of the human, the humanity on Mars, which I think is what passed for a plot. Um, yeah, there, there's a bit of like uh, the Russian representatives have conflicting interests from the American representatives. Uh, some of those like carried over conflicts start to manifest we thought we could leave it behind but we we were the real monsters Mm. it's funny i wonder uh uh well off the top of my head the first hundred are the first hundred colonists uh and they're all chosen for their like scientific specialties but they all have some slightly different political and personality uh traits uh that Mm. leads them into conflict uh including like I believe one of them, like, befriends the, uh, this group of, like, Arab colonists, uh, which, if I remember correctly, uh, are portrayed just as, like, people, uh, with a, uh, rich and deep culture, uh, and, 
uh, their own points of view on things uh, individually, uh, which for 93 is pretty good. Uh, yeah. Yes. And so they get into two conflicts. And then later on, there's conflicts about uh, whether or not to terraform Mars or whether the planet has like some right to remain what it is. Uh, right. Yeah. Mm. No, it's funny how like certain things stick out. Like, I mean, I could tell you, like I, I, I told you about like the subplot about the, the depressed therapist who like, I think might be planning to kill himself while he's trying to like solve his own depression while taking care of everyone else. And there's the scientist. This, this book has a, a phrase that I often bring up from the, from the, the scientist, uh, Sachs, uh, which I remember correctly. His first name is, uh, the, the flower saxifrage, but everyone calls him sax. Mm. Uh, and he's like, he is not presented as being on the spectrum. He is just presented as being like very logical and not interested in what people have to say. Uh, and so someone has a conversation with him, which is, uh, roughly goes like this. Uh, person A says, whoever pays the money calls the shots. And what they mean is like, the UN is paying us this money or this corporation is paying us this money. So we have to build this thing. Uh, but person A says like, who pays the money Sachs? And like Sachs thinks about it for uh, a minute and he says, well, the sun, because the sun of course gives us all energy Mm. for everything that we do without the sun, there would be nothing. Uh, and then person A says, well, then the sun calls the shots. And I have often thought of that while sweltering here in Texas with uh, uh, unaddressed climate change uh, mm-hmm. slowly uh, cooking us. Um, yeah. Sorry. But hopping back to the text for a second. No, no, no. I want to I um, tell you the whole book from memory. <clears throat> um, I'm very taken with the third line, fourth line, but all of that happened in mineral unconsciousness and unobserved. That is a very good line to me. Like mineral unconsciousness is extremely poetic and really like conveys that point. And then, and unobserved sort of changes the meter very sharply. I like it. That's my point there. Cool. No, actually, that line stuck out to me. Besides the word accreted, I think that the mineral unconsciousness was the phrase that jumped out on that first page to me as well. Um, I think also just captures that sort of scope the galactic scope whenever you think about all the history that has taken place unobserved by any sentient life i mean it's it does a good job of capturing the scale that he's dealing with at the beginning that's so interesting that it goes like like that that first paragraph sort of flirts with that that cosmic you know the mineral unconsciousness like what what happens to material when no one's there mm-hmm all the, the, the physical processes that shaped the universe and then very quickly goes to uh, there were no witnesses except for us mm-hmm. looking from the planet next door. And we immediately then go into, you know, two long paragraphs about our history with Mars. Um, maybe that's what I keep coming back to this this page about. And, and this book is that like for all for all the like unfocused, you know, cosmic sense, uh, uh, in, in these books, the, the idea that like, you have to look at everyone's point of view, Mm. he really does kind of get into individual point of views and kind of center the, the human witnesses of all of this stuff going on 
in his future history. It's very much a a novel with a lot of moving parts, and it's both interested in perspectives while not always being so interested in character. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think even that, that first paragraph said something like it's, it's sort of it's about the human relationship to Mars. And that's, I think, again, more sort of on the human, the scale of humanity um, than necessarily, even if, you know, the story is told through individuals. I think that's a sense I've got from all of his books. They're, they're very much more sort of about a human experience mm. rather than an individual's experience, even if he does have individual characters. Um, yeah, there, there are two characters in this story, Mars and humanity. <laughs> it's a romance. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get to the blue Mars before you get the happy ever after ending that everyone's going for. Mm. Like Bridgerton, basically. I can change him. He's the bad boy. Uh, Mars, playing hard to get with your leather jacket and your canals. To to go along with that, and like to go back to uh, the the love of lists and series here, the things that Mars represents for humans, mm. like blood. Okay, necessary, but like you don't want to see it. Uh, anger, again, also like sometimes can be useful. You know, sometimes you want to avoid it. War. Uh, mostly avoid, uh, and the heart. And you're like, oh wait, but I like hearts. Like there is something about that. Like, uh, I don't know. I I really do like this as a, a romance in a way. Uh, mm. a romance that ends with terraforming Mars, but uh, uh, which is, I guess, changing the beloved. Yeah, that's also an interesting, an interesting line because of the way that the heart changes the the rhythm of it: blood, anger, war, and the heart. Um, really sort of like makes it very clear that it's taking a turn. Hmm. Well, speaking of turning, uh, Chris, having reread this first page, are you interested in going on? Would you read more of this book? I would not simply because I've already read it and life is too short <laughs> to go back and reread a book that I barely got through the first time. However, reading that first page made me think, ooh, that's a great book. I'd like to read it. Um, hmm. But with the, the knowledge I have that I have already read it, no. Um, but it does make me think maybe I would um, give another Kim Stanley Robinson book a shot and I could see if I could not finish a sixth of his books. Uh. <laughs> yeah, it definitely reminds me of why I really enjoyed the first half or so of this book that I read. But the the prospect of catching up to where I was is extremely taunting. Oh, I want to I want to read it. I want to write a <laughs> I want to write a Gramassian square about it. I want to. Well, now you have a homework assignment. <laughs> every, every few years he puts out a new book and I read about it and it's like, that sounds interesting. Then I remember all the number of his books I haven't finished and I just don't. But maybe maybe one of these days I'll... Yeah. But I've got a new Jeff Vandermeer to read, so I'll probably hit that. It's funny you say that you're always drawn to the Kim Stanley Robinson premise because I feel like every time uh, uh, a book comes out... And remember, this is an author who I uh, deeply admire and love, but like the premise is o- always seems like... Uh, taking place over like 2000 years, you know, from the, mm. you know, like the wandering consciousness of a shaman uh, from the, the stone age to man's reach to the Mars. You're just like, that's a lot. You said you read the entire trilogy. Yes. How, how does it, um, how did it hold up as an entire trilogy? Do you think? <sighs> um, I think, well, but like you guys are saying, uh, there's a sense in which, um, 
some of the characters change. Uh, and I think, if I remember correctly, they discover uh, essentially some immortality drugs so that the hmm. first hundred who land on Mars, uh, the ones who survive the uh, assassinations, can live through the terraforming. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are some like beautiful character transformations and growths uh, that I, I recall. You know, there, there's like, uh, uh, there's also some people who like, well, yeah, there, there are some beautiful transformations of characters. Uh, and also, like you're saying, some people who just like really express uh, some point of view about uh, humans and their relationship with the universe and with each other um, that kind of remain consistent. Um, I mean, because that's, that's what it's all about at the end, you know? It's all about how we how we get along. Hmm. How we get along with Mars. Hmm. And uh, speaking of getting along, uh, Chris, how can how can listeners uh, get along with you if they want? That's a terrible. Uh, yeah, well, people can check out my um, publishing company, which is Skullgate Media. It's at SkullgateMedia.com. We're also on Twitter at Skullgate Media. Um, I also have my own website, cvandyke.com, and both of those sites have links to books that I have published and books that I've written myself. Thanks for joining us on Dark and Stormy Nights. I've been your host, Ben Blackberg, and you can find me on Twitter at InCatastrophe. And I've been your other host, Ben LeBate. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Reciprocity. You can find the games that I write at mrreciprocity.itch.io. And you can find my other podcast, The Chimera, at thechimera.space, on Twitter at ChimeraPod, or on your podcast app of choice. For show updates, follow Dark Knights Reads on Twitter, or visit darknightsreads.com. And we'll meet you back here next week. because of my cover but I'm waving. Mm-hmm. Ben is waving at you. I'm also waving.
You've also been invited to um, be on a podcast and discuss science fiction if you like at some point. It doesn't have to be science fiction. I've already declined on your behalf, if that's okay. Love you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Including the outtakes. Definitely.